0: and forge ahead. So get ready to conquer your fears, heal any trauma, lead with your heart, and elevate your life with grit and grace. Hey,
1: I'm Amberly Lago. Welcome back to another episode of True Grit and Grace. Today on the show, I have Bedros Kulian who is a legend in the fitness industry a legend in the coaching industry. He's really been, I'm fangirling right now, but I'm a huge fan. This is a dream come true. I know you don't say yes to everything. You don't say yes to a lot of things. So the fact that you are here, I'm in your studio means the world to me. CEO of Fit Body Bootcamp, along with Supplement Lines. I mean, entrepreneurial mindset. You're known as the genius like the, lead, the the secret weapon to so many companies and big brands. So I am so grateful yeah. to have you here and have some time to really get started with your story because it's so inspiring.
2: Well, first off, thank you, Amber Lee. And secondly, I think it was Craig Ballantyne who said, man, you're the genius behind all the big names, uh, successful names in the industry. And You don't really keep tally, but over time you realize, holy crap, like New York Times bestselling authors, NFL champions, Navy Seals, like I've coached them all. Mm -hmm. And you name the blue check mark, I've probably taught them how to run a mastermind or coaching program. And Mm -hmm. it's just been a neat thing, but also when you've got nearly 20 years under your belt, you're gonna rack up some, uh, some accolades. So I'm just very grateful for that.
1: Well, your story is probably the most inspiring American business story I've ever heard. I mean, you were a communist, now you're like the, a successful capitalist. Mm-hmm. People come to you to learn how to scale their businesses and increase their sales. And But I would love to share how you got started because your story, you moved here so young and you went from like dumpster diving for food to this beautiful, business that you have now so could you share a little bit about Mm -hmm. your younger days how you started as a kid and how you moved out here and i know it's important that your dad said, share how we really became Americans. That's important to him. So if you could share a little bit about that, I would love that. Yeah,
2: and and I appreciate you uh, for allowing that. And thank you for doing the research, by the way. And One thing that my dad always does say, he says, hey, whatever stage you're on, whatever publication you're published in, whatever TV show, whatever you're on, he doesn't really understand what podcasts are, so he just calls them TV shows.
1: (laughs) My Um, mom doesn't either. (laughs) I've
2: probably been on a small (laughs) handful of TV shows. But he says, explain how we ended up here in the United States, because you know as you kind of qualified the show by saying like hey you're a former communist turned capitalist it was a communist not by choice and mm-hmm. so we come from the soviet union uh, specifically armenia and my dad was a member of the communist party again not by choice even though they give you a choice and say hey would you like to be a member if you say no you end up getting shipped off to siberia right mm. and so In 1973, a year before I was born, he became an official member of the Communist Party. About 18% of the population are members of the Communist Party. And so, as he was a member of the Communist Party, he had liberties and, and, and access in that communist state that the average citizen in the Soviet Union didn't. So you can imagine, we lived a better life than the average citizen throughout the Soviet Union. Even then, my dad, Uh, would listen to the Beach Boys and Elvis and he would wear Jordache jeans and I remember he had uh, Adidas shoes. He was very westernized. Like the man was just- And
1: was that okay to wear that kind of stuff? He would buy it on the
2: black market. Okay. And it was okay to wear it, especially if you remember the Communist Party, you kind of, no one's going to ask you, right? Because he had the ability to walk into any store and- audit the place, um, Wow! And anyone that had, was a member of this. So it's really weird. Um, in every town, there'll be a certain number of party members who have this red passport that signifies that you're a Communist Party member, and that if you feel that particular store is maybe doing something shady, selling stuff under the table and pocketing the cash, because remember, all businesses were owned by the uh, by the motherland, right? And so my dad and other Communist Party members could go and audit. Uh, He never once did that. He would leave his little passport at home and my older brother would take that and go to all these places and pretty much have an audit you guys if you don't give me flowers. And then he'd take the flowers and give it to his girlfriend. Wow. And
1: how old was your brother when he was doing that?
2: My brother is 14 years older than me. So at the time he was in his (laughs) teens while I was just a little puppy and um he, so, he was a
1: smart kid yeah, wasn't he yeah he'd get
2: free taxi rides like <laughs> wow that gets you a lot of privileges it's like being an a-list celebrity here right like imagine, yeah
1: or you know my husband is a retired lieutenant commander and our first date we went on we got pulled over and we got out of that ticket there you go yeah i mean
2: right so
1: there's he's retired now i can say that kind of stuff right, right. you wouldn't <laughs> say
2: it if he wasn't retired and so in in 1980 my dad decided that we're going to escape and the plan was to make it look like we're going to Italy for, uh, for a vacation, because Italy is uh, communist sympathizers. And so just two suitcases and a family of five. I was six years old. My brother at the time was 19. My wow. sister was 22. And, so did uh,
1: you have to make it look like your house was yes, left intentionally, yes. like you were mm-hmm. coming back?
2: yes wow and of course we can only take two suitcases to make it look like you were just, you going were just on like gonna a a short vacation. trip yeah and we just take like a train that's ride that's
1: crazy mm-hmm.
2: yeah and and so in fact my mom had made a list she just told me this a few months ago she had made a list of to all her kind of siblings and my aunts and uncles once we're gone you guys get these pots and pans you guys wow. get these beddings you guys get the silverware but until we're free and clear into italy like do not touch anything in the apartment wow a nice apartment there so we get to Italy and it took us about 10 days to go to the American consulate, and for my dad to say, look, I'm a member of the Communist Party. I denounce communism. Uh, you can pump me for any information you want. We would like to enter the United States legally. And so we legally, on June 16th, 1980, we legally entered wow. the United States. And um, he had chose California simply because- So
1: you were like six years uh-huh. old?
2: Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we chose California because it's a warm state. And of course, living in in the Soviet Union, especially Armenia, it's very cold and snowy. Mm -hmm. So all he knew was California was a warm state, and so we chose California. So we had about 250 bucks in our pocket, uh, two suitcases, didn't understand the language, didn't speak the culture, and very quickly had to assimilate. And so, yeah, sometimes when your dad finds, so he had a paper route by like the second day he had a paper route by the fourth day. He had a paper route and he was pumping gas. And he had he had discovered that there's a grocery store that's got this giant dumpster in the back of it. And they throw away food that's expired, yeah. but hasn't necessarily gone bad yet. Or maybe the bread has some mold on it, but you can pick off the mold and eat the bread. And so I became the breadwinner because I was the smallest one in the family. And he would kind of lift me up into the dumpster and I'd pull out like a head of lettuce that was rotted. but if you. Peel off all of those lettuce leaves, there is a fresh little head of lettuce under there. Mm. Um, milk that was expired but hadn't soured yet. Yeah. All right. And so that's how we lived. And then we later lived, moved into Section 8 housing, which is government assisted housing. That has its own stories. But.
1: Well, did you feel as a kid like, was that just normal for you? Or did you think, well, oh, this, uh, this, I'm. Being loaded, like there were things in my childhood that I thought that was normal. That's what everybody did. And looking back, I'm like, that was so not normal. At the time, did you think or were you proud that like, I'm the breadwinner of the family. I'll get y'all food.
2: (laughs) I was happy that I was able to help because my brother and sister all went out and got jobs the best Mm -hmm. they could, you know, washing dishes, et cetera. And so I felt like at least that's my contribution because I could Mm -hmm. hear the conversation in the house And now I'm so aware my kids are now 13 and 15, but when they were smaller, I was like, man, these kids are listening. I was listening and I would hear my dad always gripe about how we run out of money before we run out of month. And he has to make a decision whether we're gonna have electricity or water the remainder of the month until he gets his next check. Mm. And so for me, I, I knew that we were in a place where we were not liked because I would hear people yell at them and say, go back to your own effing country, you foreigners, you're taking all our jobs. Mm. And you could imagine, I felt helpless. I wanted to, I remember feeling wanted to do something, but mm-hmm. like, what are you gonna do when you're six, seven, eight years old? Mm-hmm. And so I would see my dad get in fist fights with people in the apartment complexes that we lived in. My brother would get into fist fights with people because it's just, you resort to violence when you are getting bullied and picked on constantly. And so I felt like that was my contribution. At least I get to fish out food out of a dumpster. Mm-hmm.
1: But also, I, I don't remember if I heard it in your book. I love your book, by the way. Thank you. I, I read it, and I also have it on Audible. And I'd be listening to your book, and my husband would be like, you're still at the grocery store? And I'd be like, oh, I'm really in the car listening uh, to your uh, book. Uh, thank you. Um, so it's really, but I don't know if I remember this from your book or another interview I heard you on. That there were sometimes in your living, you know, in apartments, that there were no children allowed. So mm-hmm. you would have to hide or be yeah. evicted. So you must yeah. have, did it not ever feel safe as a kid for you? Did you have a safe place where you felt like you could like thrive or be yourself or comfortable? Nope. No.
2: Nope. And, uh, That builds resiliency in you later on. In the moment, it creates a lot of fight or flight. It creates a lot of fear. Having to be whisked out before the sun comes up and people in the apartment complex start milling around. And then literally being in a kitchen of a pizzeria where your dad talked to the pizzeria owner to allow you to come there after school because you can't go home because it's daytime. And so my dad was bussing tables, and then when it would get dark and people weren't milling around, eight, nine o'clock p.m., then he'd whisk me into the apartment complex. And mm-hmm. then when they would find it, so back then in the in the 80s, they had apartment complexes that said, no kids, no pets. And anyone who's old enough, I'm 46, would remember that. And so I think later on, years later, it was one of those things where, hey, you can't discriminate against kids, and so you can't do that, and that went away. But in those times, the there was apartments that were no kids no pets and some of those were cheaper and so my parents would lie and say hey we don't have any young kids they're all older and so they'd kind of sneak me in and then we'd get evicted and i felt i would feel horrible because we got kicked out because of me and um, so no there was there wasn't that much safety security comfort whatever predictability i mean i went to three elementary schools two junior highs two high schools but when you fast forward through into into my life, I realize all of that uncertainty and adversity built so much resilience in me mm-hmm. that I use today. Did I just use last year getting through the COVID virus as the CEO of an international fitness franchise, mm-hmm. right? And my ability to like, I'm not gonna die. I'm not gonna let this thing kill me. But yeah, my childhood wasn't the best.
1: Yeah, there was something else that we have in common that I was like so Actually, I heard you in an interview and I was crying (laughs) because I was like, oh, my gosh, our stories parallel so much that I was sexually abused by my stepfather. And I remember um, the first time I went to therapy and I talked about it and the therapist was like, have you dealt with it? And I was like, oh, yeah, I've dealt with that. They're like, well, have you done this, this or this? I'm like, oh, no, but I've dealt with it. And my way of dealing with it was. I just became extra good at being an overachiever. Mm -hmm. I became a workaholic. I had a successful business. I became the best runner. I set a track record in the state of Texas for running the fastest mile because when I did things that made me feel like a winner, I felt better. So I just ran faster and I didn't realize that I was running away from shame and anger and all these emotions Mm -hmm. through everything that I was doing until I couldn't run anymore and I was stuck in a hospital bed and it all caught up to me. And that was, you know, I was 38 years old and I'm like, I'm just now dealing with this. Mm -hmm. And I know that you shared in an interview that you were also, you had some um, sexual abuse as a kid. And I really wanna say thank you for sharing that because there's not a lot of men that will be so brave to talk about that, especially men that are big and buff like you, that are successful entrepreneurs. And so I appreciate you sharing that, but I was wondering if you could share how you got through that trauma. So others that are listening might go, oh my God, that happened to me too. How did he get through that?
2: Well, uh, I mean, very similar to you. I thought I had dealt with it. I thought I had dealt with it. For you, it was at 38. For me, it was at 37 years old when I had a massive anxiety attack. And in the book, I talk about, I, I say well, I said, this thing happened, I my first heart attack. My, I thought I was having a heart attack because I'd never had an anxiety attack before. But in hindsight, it had finally caught up with me. And Fast forward to back to Armenia, between the ages of four and six, I was uh, molested by two older boys. Um, continually. Um, in the carports where we lived, um, you know, and you kind of disassociate. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's been sexually abused knows what it's like. You, your body's there, but you mentally go away mm-hmm. when that's happening. And so once again, that served as a superpower as I got older because when something was happening, I could disassociate from what's happening to handle what needs to be handled. And my way of dealing with it was just stuffing it away and keeping busy and distracting myself with work and avoiding and ignoring Mm -hmm. the signs. And soon those signs catch up. And for me, they caught up at the age of 37 in the form of an anxiety attack, which I thought was a heart attack because from everything I'd learned about heart attacks was you know your arms tingle or one arm tingles and my heart's beating and I'm sweating amberly and I couldn't figure out why because it's early in the morning and it's not a hot day and you know I'm in my guest house looking for my tennis shoes that I left there the night before, and it was like tunnel vision and I can't see the peripheral I'm like, holy crap, this is how I die right thinking I'm having a heart attack and I remember thinking to myself, not like I'm worried about dying, I just felt so sad for. Andrew, Chloe, and Diana. Who's going to teach Andrew to be a modern-day oh. knight? And who's going to who's gonna walk Chloe down the aisle? And doggone it, I, I made a promise to die mm. that I would protect her. And who's mm. going to protect her now, right? And so my the weird part of my brain that didn't want to cause any more trauma for my family was like, all right, dude, if you die here in the guest house, which my guest house was across the pool deck up on the second floor above my garage, and my family had thought I'd gone to work. So I'm like, dude, if you die here in the guest house, they're not gonna find you till late tonight. And who knows that rigor mortis is set in and your body's all like bloated and you're dis- discolored and your kids are gonna see this and they're gonna panic, right? That's the last sight of dad. Oh. And so my strategy was I'm gonna somehow find my way down the staircase and hopefully die on the, by the pool deck so that my wife will see me through the French doors and they'll at least see me as normal as possible. And of course, as I go down the staircase, I don't know if it was the fresh air or the movement, I, all the symptoms went away. Mm. And I'm just left in a sweat, the sweaty puddle. I'm like, I think I just dodged a heart attack bullet. And off to work I went. Well, I later found out it was an anxiety attack and I had more of those. And so the doctor's like, dude, your heart's fine, but you've got to deal with this stress and anxiety that you have from work. And it was right around about two or three years after I launched Fit Body Bootcamp as a franchise. So you can imagine the workload was severe. But really it was unprocessed trauma mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. caught up to me. And so they put me on Xanax, and of course Xanax was just killing my creativity. So I'm like, I'm not doing mm-hmm. this. I go, hey doc, what's my other option? He goes, talk therapy. I'm like, I'm not broken, I don't need this. Mm-hmm. Goes, a therapist can help you get over your anxiety and your you know, stress management, et cetera. <clears throat> Great, let's do it. So I meet a guy, his name is Kevin. Within four sessions, he teaches me uh, that anxiety is anticipation of future pain that action alleviates anxiety. Uh, that, that.
1: I was doing push-ups before <laughs> right. we started. Right. Actually, They're like, I using, said, do you yeah. mind if I do some push-ups? Because I was like I, nervous sure. before we nervous started. Yep. And so I got down to do some push-ups and it it does. Yeah. But it only gets you so far.
2: Right. <laughs> you got to deal with the... Right. And so about four sessions in, he's uh, Kevin's giving me all these tools to deal with my stress and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And so I'm dealing with them. And at the end of that fourth session, I was like, Kevin, haven't felt any sense of anxiety or stress, so thank you, job well done, off I go. In those four weeks, he had built such rapport with me that during that last session, he goes, hey, Bedros, is there anything else we need to talk about? You know, your family, your parents? I'm like, nope, everything was fine there, Kevin. I go, plus, um, you know, I come from a family where, you know, communists, you know, they, they I was never put on restriction. Like, my dad would slap me around and beat me, and then I can go out and play again. Mm-hmm. And I go however Kevin what happened to me before that um, as a kid was even worse than my dad slapping me around for some reason I just forfeited that information that I'd never shared with anyone
1: You had never shared that never, with anyone Never
2: and so wow. and so Kevin's like what happened and I just was I'm standing at the doorway of his office at the end of my fourth session with him and I just started bawling and I'm oh. crying right and I'm like shit why did I share this why did I give this up Well clearly subconsciously I'm asking for help right mm-hmm. in hindsight and so here i am squirming in my chair so obviously i still need to talk about this more
1: but it's really hard to talk about and i remember you know thank goodness you had a safe place to talk about it i remember i told my first husband was like the first person i told and when we were going through a divorce he actually told my mom and my mom didn't know and it was the best thing to happen because then my mom went and punched my stepdad she came out to california And then when she got back home, he was gone, never to be seen again. He left. And all those years, I thought he would deny it or something like that. But it's good that you had a safe place Mm -hmm. to to share.
2: Yeah, yeah. And so I guess because I felt safe with him, I trusted him. We spent the next 16 months every doggone Monday. Joan there would set up my Monday uh, appointments at 6 o'clock. So I'd leave HQ at 5 and drive over there and— We do the deep dive and work through the shame, the rage, the confusion, feeling uh, uh, unlovable, uh, broken, and uh, work work through it for 16 months. And then one day uh, at a speaking event, and I was supposed to speak about leadership of all things, and uh, Tony Robbins is up on stage ahead of me. It was actually the Genius Network event, Joe Polish's event. Tony Robbins is on stage. I'm in the back of the ballroom getting mic'd up. Nervous as heck, because Well, who, I mean, who you're going on after. <clears throat> right.
1: Oh, my God. And the
2: man's got like hands like mittens <laughs> and he's just like clapping. and He's got the audience on oh fire. Oh,
1: my like, God. First of all, Joe
2: Polish is a jerk for putting me on after him. Oh, Secondly,
1: but you're amazing. I've seen you. you on stage and I, I was saying before we started that you are seriously like one of my favorite speakers in the world, not just on stage, but off stage. Thank you're you. the real deal. But who would ever want to follow him nobody
2: <laughs> so i get up on stage and uh, you know i'm just like shouting out tony like hey man wasn't he amazing i was pumped up in the back blah 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 and i'm like looking at the audience and i know that they're all millionaires who own businesses and i'm thinking these guys don't need lead- they can hire leaders just like i do i have like 3 vps in my company <sighs> Like, you know what, guys, we're not going to talk about leadership. Joe Polish, I hope you don't mind. I'm going to talk about the stuff that we really need to address, which is the traumas that we've experienced. Because everyone in here, one out of every four of you have had sexual abuse. One out of every three of you had emotional or mental abuse. And you could just see grown people squirming in their seats, uncomfortable.
1: I bet they all started scrolling yeah. on their phone yeah. at that point. They yeah. were like eye contact and none. No <laughs> eye
2: contact, exactly. But it was the best. It was the first time I publicly talked about it. Um, 13 guys, including Dean Graciosi came up to me and Dean's a good, uh, good, dear friend of mine. I He's like, Dean. man, I've, I've gone through something like this before. I've never talked about it until recently. And so we just, it just helps for you to go and you're normal too, Dean. Holy cow. Like, I really felt like there was this broken monster living inside me and that I'm not lovable. I'm not supposed to experience love and, and safety and compassion. And that's all not true. And so anyways, I've dealt with it and I think more people ought to cope with it, get past that trauma. And when you do, you begin to not self-sabotage anymore. You're not, so like people around me were tense. And I couldn't figure out why people around me were tense and walking on eggshells. It's because of this energy I was putting off. Mm-hmm. And literally, like a year or two later, people hadn't seen me for a while like, man, you look younger, you look lighter, you look like you're just like this different energy about you. I'm mm-hmm. like, holy crap, I'm not holding the secret in and I actually feel lovable, I'm worthy of love, I'm worthy of compassion, I'm worthy of care, I'm worthy of all of it. And um, so it was a game changer for me. And if there's one thing I wish for people, it's that they, even though they've thought that they dealt with it just like I did, all we did is just like push it aside Mm -hmm. and we keep ourselves busy with creating more businesses and doing more things and distractions, but at or some point-
1: Or trying to numb it out. That yeah. I eventually, when I couldn't do the things that worked for me before, I would try to numb it out. And that got me into trouble. I mm-hmm. thought, I'm not like all the other alcoholics in my family. I'm the fitness girl. Right. Then I realized, oh, wow, addiction doesn't discriminate. And if we don't deal with the trauma, it comes up and our lives and our businesses and our relationships. And Everywhere. so yeah. I think that for you, by dealing with it, you've become even more incredible leader for your for your team. And now you show other businesses how to create leaders in their businesses, in their teams, on their brands. I mean, you coach some of the top people, top podcasters, top speakers, p- people that are out there You're the genius behind their businesses. And I think you talk about resilience. All that you have gone through, through your childhood, all the trauma that you've managed to work through, but you've really worked through it. And I think that's where some people just want to magically have transformation and sometimes don't realize it takes a lot of work. Like you said, you went to therapy yeah. and dealt with it. It's not easy. Therapy's draining, it takes a I lot mean, of energy. You
2: know this. Like there were times I would walk out of his office and I would then sit in my truck for another hour. And then the rest of that week, I felt like there was like this fog in my head while I'm walking through molasses. That's how I would describe it to people. Uh, well, Joan and my wife, they were like the closest people to me that I knew that I was going to a therapist. And I would just say, well, I just, there's this fog in my head and I'm walking through molasses. That's the only way I could describe it. Everything's just heavy. And then four or five days after that session, I would have a breakthrough and I just feel lighter again, only to go back to Kevin on Monday and start Mm -hmm. digging deeper and then removing scabs and looking what's underneath and bringing things out of the shadows and into the light. And oh, okay, look at that, look, look how I show up when there's conflict because of this, okay, mm-hmm. let's address this, and we'd spend two, three, four weeks on that one thing, and, uh, but the most compelling thing Kevin did for me that I would be remiss if I didn't share here is that he gave me the first sentence, and he said, I want you to write a letter to the to the six-year-old boy that you were when we came, when you came to the United States, and he gave me the first sentence, and the first sentence was, between the ages of four and six uh, in Armenia, I was molested by two older boys, but now I'm dot, dot, dot. And then I got to write, but now who I am. And I had never really patted myself on the back or, or, or congratulated myself for these experiences that I've in building a businesses, getting on the ink list and on the entrepreneur magazine list four years in a row. And it was just on to the next one, onto the next one, onto the next one. And as I'm writing that, what ended up being a 13-page letter to that little boy of who he is now, it was so oh, healing. That
1: makes me want to cry.
2: It was so healing. Um, highly recommend everyone try that.
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I had, um, uh, I've been sober by the grace of God for five years now, and I had, my sponsor was like, I want you to write a leg, um, or leg, I want you to write a letter to your leg. And I'm like, you want me to write a letter to to my leg, I didn't realize I had so much anger Mm. and stuff about that my leg didn't work properly, that it gave me so much pain. So I'm like, okay, I wrote the letter and I gave it to her and she read it. And she was like, oh my gosh, I didn't know words like that could come out of your mouth that you've got a lot of anger about your leg. I didn't know that it was in there. She goes, now I want you to write a different letter and acknowledge all that you can do like gratitude is so big in my life. It has changed my life. It's really been alchemy. Just shifting your perspective and focusing on what you do have in your life instead of what you don't has been transformative. But yes, writing a letter to your younger self or even parts of your body that you don't like much can really teach you to start to love yourself, your life more, Mm -hmm. so I love that. I wanted to ask you. I mean, we're, we've been going through COVID, and things have changed. And I know you wear a lot of different hats. So you coach people, especially leaders, who are probably freaking out with COVID about what to what what to do next with their business. So I know you have that hat. You've got your nutritional stuff. But you've got your fit body boot camps. Mm -hmm. How many? Do you have like over six hundred? How many do you have? Well, we had
2: over six hundred. How many do you have now? We have uh, under four hundred now.
1: You're kidding? Yeah. I was so curious to ask you like how that went on. I mean, our gym and my neighbor. I live in Woodland Hills. And our gym was closed, and so it just opened. And so I wondered how your businesses were doing.
2: Yeah, so having locations across the U.S. and Canada, and Canada is still on, like, full lockdown. Mm. And so our 75 locations in Canada have dwindled down to 20-something because they can't even operate at 10% or 25% capacity. And so just now things are opening up. But the point of that is you, you get to a point in life where you realize, like, all right, God forbid this franchise fails, completely goes away during this COVID time, I'm still who I am. There was a time in my 30s that my identity was tied to my success, to my business. Mm -hmm. And if COVID came in my 30s, I probably would have taken on a very heavy narcotic habit. Instead, during uh, 2020, I just took on two or three cocktails a night.
1: Um, (laughs) I think a lot of people did, though. Uh, uh, And you know what? I just I I don't usually talk about my sobriety. And I just shared on social media that I had five years of sobriety. And the only reason I did that was because this last year of sobriety during COVID was the hardest. Dealing with all the feels, all the change, all the different kinds of busyness and like having to feel it. Like, not being able to, like, uh, just get a drink or something like that. So I, I shared that, but it was tough.
2: It was. It was. And, you know, I remember all my buddies would reach out to me in 2017, 18, 19, like, man, you know, you're the CEO of Fit Body Bootcamp. I see you on the ink list again, on the entrepreneur list. Look at that. ABC just made you the top 15 franchises. And in 2020, those same buddies were reaching out, uh, jokingly, of course, like, Hey, man, you okay? You gonna eat a bullet? You all right? (laughs) You know, like, nobody wanted my job in 2020. Nobody wanted to be the CEO of a fitness franchise. And I get it. Uh, Hell, I didn't want to either. It's just I'm tied to it. I had nowhere to go. Mm. And so, you know, the first few months, you kind of to cope with it, I, I took on a bit of a drinking habit. And then I was like, all right, dude, snap out of this. Of course, led my franchisees and God, I can't say this enough. I've got the most awesome Fit Body Bootcamp franchisees on the planet. The years and years and years of instilling a high level of discipline in them, of work ethic in them, and just choosing the right franchisees to be in business with. We turned the corner. Within 72 hours, we locked down all the locations. We went to online coaching and launched a new online coaching program to start generating new leads and clients for them.
1: Wait, how <clears> fast did you do that? 72
2: hours. Wow. Yeah. So talk about the, Which, the, the team of just amazing, amazing people.
1: Well, to be resilient, though, I think you have to be have a brilliant mind like you. You have to have a great leader like you. you are, and you have to be creative. I can't tell you how many of my friends that were just like, well, I'm just going to wait until the gym opens up again, and I'm like, dude, you can't wait, you gotta do something now. See, this,
2: this is where I believe being a, com- a former communist benefited me because- You got
0: that
1: immigrant
2: edge too. The immigrant edge and then the paranoia. You could never trust a communist government. My dad instilled that in me. And so he just pretty much instilled you could never trust him. So my dad, true story, he lives in Anaheim right now. Hopefully people don't go looking for his address. He's got three <laughs> Folgers coffee jars full of money buried in his backyard. Me and my brother know where they're buried and under what rock, because he doesn't. He still doesn't trust the system, the government.
1: Do you know my dad texted me this morning? I will show you the text when we're done. He's got money hidden. I'm the only person. Oh no, everybody knows now. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> everybody yeah. knows now. You and me and everyone uh, else. Uh huh. No, but I mean, he he doesn't trust the government doesn't trust anybody, Uh, and yeah.
2: And so I went into it with that mindset. So remember, what we knew in March of 2020 was that this virus is very contagious, that it's very deadly, and I felt that as the CEO of Fit Body Bootcamp, it was my duty and obligation on March 16th to ask all Fit Body Bootcamp locations to shut their doors and help flatten the curve. That was what we kept hearing, right? Mm -hmm. And I, I said, guys, two weeks to four weeks tops. This is what we're hearing. You guys are hearing it on the news. But in the meantime, we're going to, in the 72 hours, we're going to create an online coaching platform in case this should go on longer. Mm -hmm. Thank God we did because as we know now, it went on. It's gone uh, 12 months. Mm -hmm. 12 months. Now there was a little three-week period here in most states that things opened up in June, yeah, uh, only to lock down again, which was just like a slap to everybody's face. And I believe restaurants and gyms felt it the most. yeah. But all, all that said, thank God for that high level of paranoia that I have. yeah. <laughs> and and I said, yeah, well, just to be on the safe side, we're gonna create mm-hmm. an online coaching system in case the doors are shut for a long time. And that, that saved our bacon.
1: I uh, think being resourceful uh, from the time you were born, basically, yeah, that also helped. Uh, really helped give you that edge that you need to be a successful business person because you're always thinking, okay, well, this doesn't work. Maybe I can go around this way and figure it out another way. I mean, you're very resourceful. So I yeah. think that all what you learned as a kid really helped you. I love how you say it's that immigrant edge yeah, and that paranoia really has served you well mm-hmm. and it's given you some superpowers. Yeah.
2: Yeah, and, and I'm very thankful for it. I mean, I would never wish for anyone to experience what I experienced as a kid. I think there's certainly better ways to mm-hmm. learn resourcefulness and resiliency, but um, that's how I learned it, and I'm, and mm-hmm. I'm grateful for it.
1: Yeah. Yeah, my, my youngest daughter learns it. She's a horseback rider, so she learns it on her horse by being thrown off and getting back on mm-hmm. by the you know horse being stubborn. So I would rather kids learn it that way yes. than the way that I learned it as well. Exactly. But so you've been able to, you know, are you starting to travel again with speaking engagements yet?
2: Yes. Uh, interestingly enough, it's like Texas, Florida, Arizona, Texas, Florida, Arizona, and yeah. Vegas, and Vegas. So it's all of the, the states that we all know that's starting to open up. Yeah. Um, and it feels good. I got to be honest with you, after, you know, not speak well, I, the Zoom talks don't count.
1: I know. You it's know not it the you, same. Yeah, it's not the
2: same. I feed off the energy. I know you do I as do well. Too. I like the interaction with people. And so for me, the first talk I did after COVID ended, or at least in front of real humans, I was a bit nervous. I was a little nervous. I was a little uh
1: Well, this is my this second interview in person okay. in over a year, and I have not been around cameras like this, and so when we opened, I was like Uh, hi. (laughs) Because, you know, when you're used to being in front of like real cameras a lot and on Mm -hmm. stage a lot, you can just go with it. But I'm like, oh, I've been so excited about getting to see you in person. So this is like, feels like a trip to Disneyland. And we didn't even get into your story about working at Disneyland. Y'all got to, y'all got to read his book.
2: (laughs) You know, Uh, I don't know if you know this. I don't know if I shared this in the book, but I am famous for shutting down the Jungle Cruise ride for two days. Because I- uh,
1: What did you do? Yeah, so
2: if, if you just imagine, <laughs> I gotta share this with your audience, so next time they're at Disneyland or Disney World, they will know what I'm talking about. So imagine Main Street, USA in Disneyland. Main Street, USA, Carnation Cafe, as you're headed towards the castle, is on the left-hand side about halfway up the street. What most people don't know is because uh, whatever the land is where Jungle Cruise is, Adventureland, is behind, is to the left of Main Street, there's a large river, man-made river, where they park the Jungle Cruise boats, one after another in two rows. I didn't know those things were on a track which kind of makes sense because when the guy's like driving through the jungle, uh, he's looking at the audience and just randomly steering the boat and it's not crashing into (laughs) anything. So the dots connected after, but I was a busboy at Carnation Cafe restaurant, right behind the back doors, right out the back doors was that Jungle Cruise River where these boats were parked. And it was two in the morning, I had a group of really slow busboys with me working. And so my strategy was like, I did the math, if we clean try and wash all these 19 bus tubs with like pots and pans and ladles and spoons in it. We're not going to get out of here until five in the morning. And I had places to go. And uh, as in one of the guys rented a hotel room or having a hotel room, hotel party. Anyway, and it, so I had nowhere really to go other than- You like,
1: had places to be. I am going to drink
2: heavily at two in the morning and I didn't want to miss the party at five, right? So my plan was I'm going to take all these bus tubs, I'm going to dump them into the river. What I didn't know that because they're on a track, that the first boat in the morning, when they tried to drive it out, oh, no. it got derailed, and it backed up all the boats. And so when I got to work that next afternoon, oh, no. they have divers in like full on wetsuit gear oh, coming out with goodness. pots and pants and ladles, and I'm like, "Wow, what happened there?"
1: <laughs> oh not, my yeah. goodness! Yeah,
2: so it was uh, it was unfortunate because for two days they had to take time to retrack the uh, uh, the boats, but. That's my claim to fame.
1: Oh, my goodness. You yeah. have some incredible stories from Disneyland, though. And yeah. you take every experience and turn it into a real learning experience. Like, you made games out of how fast could you bust those mm-hmm. tables. How And you learned how one of the things you learned is how not to be a leader yes. from Kathy. Disneyland.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had Kathy as a shift supervisor, and uh, Doug as another shift supervisor. Doug was this Southern guy, big giant man, about 6'3", maybe 280 pounds, and uh, our shift leads. So by this point, I was a dinner cook now. I was no longer a busboy, I was a dinner cook. And when Main Street USA is packed, I mean, it is packed. People are waiting for the electrical parade. Every night, Carnation Cafe would become the world's busiest restaurant. The world's wow. busiest restaurant, wow. statistically speaking. So the tickets are just popping out, and we're supposed to cook like dozens of steaks and hundreds of hamburgers, etc. And so Doug would come in in his big bellowing Southern voice, and he'd flip his tie over his shoulder, and like, "What can I do to help you, boys?" And he'd jump right in and make salads or sandwiches or take the grill. Kathy would come in, on the other hand, and go like, "She." So we have to take temperatures of everything every hour, make mm-hmm. sure everything's the right temperature, and she'd look at the temperature log and see that we're two hours behind. We haven't. And so she would just come up to me as the dinner cook, as I'm like cooking up a storm here. And she would just start speaking to the side of my face. Well, I see the temperatures haven't been taken for the last two hours, and we don't know if the health department's gonna randomly come in tonight right now, this very moment. And I remember thinking like, could you be more like Doug and less like yourself right now? Mm -hmm. And so it was a really great experience. And she would just deflate morale. Whereas Doug would come in and you wouldn't even want to go on your break because he would flip his tie over his shoulder and he would cook. And you just want to be next to him and you don't want to let him down. And you're like, Doug, I'm going to skip my break until the electrical parade is over. We're good, man. Um, so, so what a great experience. I got to take that. And when I started my own business here, I was like, you know what? I've got people to lead. And I could either be like Doug or I could be like Kathy. Mm-hmm. And so I choose to be like Doug.
1: Yeah, that's amazing. Well, um, we got just, can I just ask a couple more questions? I appreciate your time. I mean, I, there's so much about your story that is so interesting, but you speak a lot on how to build confidence. And I know that's one of the questions I get a lot is about confidence. Um, especially from, from people when they see all my scars, they're like, how did you start showing your scars or, you know, or how did you learn to be a speaker and go on stages or, you know, how did you meet Bedros? You know, <laughs> so so I would love for you to break down how to be confident, because I just listened to one of your podcast episodes. Your podcast is amazing, by the way. You. And you talk about true confidence versus like fake it till you make it.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not a big believer in the whole fake it till you make it, because that's like when guys go like, man, I want to be alpha. And so they start wearing these fake giant gold watches and go lease a Lamborghini, yet they can't even make eye contact with you because they haven't done anything of substance in life. Mm -hmm. They're leasing. Yeah. If you got good credit, you can put a thousand bucks down and pay $1,200 a month and you can lease a Lamborghini and you can get a big giant fossil watch that from the far looks like all this blingage etc. And so fake confidence is not something that I think people ought to try and strive for. And that's not even alpha in terms of guys. But Real it's confidence.
1: like fake followers, fake on, on social. How can you feel good? Uh, it's... Yeah,
2: you know, and that's exactly it. It's you know inside. And so mm-hmm. confidence is a byproduct of credibility. So the higher the credibility you have with yourself, the higher the confidence you have. So what's the easiest way to build credibility tomorrow morning? Well, I'm going to set my alarm for 5.30 a.m. tonight when I go to bed. At 5.30 a.m., the alarm's going to go off tomorrow. If I hit the snooze button... I've lost credibility with myself, right? Mm. Because I made a promise to myself that I'm gonna wake up at 5.30, then I hit the snooze button. Yeah. And so if I lose credibility, I no longer trust myself. If I don't trust mm-hmm. myself, I've got no credibility, I've got no confidence. If I don't hit the snooze button and I spring out of bed, then I've got a W, I've got a win.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Then the next win after that is to drink my 30 ounces of water that's sitting right there on my nightstand. Now I've got another win. And then it's to send out three gratitude text messages to people I love and cherish and value in my life who had just poured into me over time. Three random people. And if I just send out two instead of three, well, it's a loss, right? Mm-hmm. And so as I go through my day stacking those little wins, when it's time to negotiate with Saudi Arabia about opening 26 Fit Body Boot Camps there, uh, when this whole COVID thing ends, then guess what? I'm gonna not miss the call by mm-hmm. accident. I'm gonna show up as my best self. I'm gonna have all this days of credibility under my belt, I'm gonna win that as well. Mm-hmm. And so confidence is a byproduct of stacking wins, little wins, big wins, but it's really a byproduct of keeping a promise to yourself. Mm-hmm. And if you break the promises to yourself, then you lose credibility, you lose confidence. You keep those promises, you gain confidence. It's, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. It's simple to understand, but in that moment when you're like, oh, just 10 more minutes and you hit snooze, yeah. you just lost credibility.
1: Yeah. And, you know, I mean, how I was raised is our word is everything. So we do that. It's integrity, integrity and honesty Mm -hmm. with ourselves and with other people. And that is the most important value to me is the trust with someone that and that somebody can count on me. But that starts with counting on yourself. So I love that. Like simple thing that you can do tomorrow is just set your alarm and actually get out of bed. And okay. it's important to celebrate those wins. So um, I wanna know what's next for you. Saudi Arabia?
2: Yes, Saudi Arabia and Europe for a Fit Body wow. Bootcamp. Yep. That's amazing. That's what's next for us in terms of Fit Body Bootcamp. And then in terms for me, I, I feel the gnawing of a second book.
1: I was just but gonna i in no rush you. to
2: do it because it was the most painful, well, other than the year of being CEO of a fitness franchise during COVID. The book was the second most painful thing I've done. And so I'm in no rush, but I do feel the birthing of a book coming within.
1: I feel you. I feel like it's like, um, (laughs) kind of like childbirth actually. It takes a little while to forget how hard it was and painful. And I feel that coming on in me too. Like maybe there's another book, but thank you for sharing that that was painful and hard to write because I hear people that write a book and they're like, Oh, it just poured out of me. It was blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, I, I didn't even yeah. own a computer when I wrote my book. Not I hand long. wrote my whole book and then bought a computer. So I was just saying to your amazing team, by the way, I was like, all this technology and everything, it's all kind of new to me. So thank you for doing this. Of course. Thank and you for coming out. Yeah, the book, it's a lot. It is. But it yours is, is, you know what? It's a lot when it's well done and yours is really well done. Like, I appreciate it. I've got, you know, highlights in it, but I, I, let me ask you one more question. The Audible book, was yes. that hard for you to do?
2: Yes. In fact, uh, Joan had booked, so the publisher said, hey, here's three places where you guys can go to record, Badrus can go to record the audio book. I looked for voiceover people left and right to do it for me, but I kept hearing from people when I teased the idea that I'm writing a book, like, Badrus, we hope you're going to do the voiceover. Like, we need to hear it in your voice, your passion. And I was like, Shit. Mm-hmm. All right, so I said, Joan, uh, if the publisher says I need two days, just book four days, because, okay, being a foreigner.
1: That's smart that you said yeah. book four days.
2: Amber Lee, being a foreigner, and when English is your second language, you know, going back to traumatic events. Remember, like, in elementary school when they're like, all right, we're all going to read a few sentences from this book. So Amber Lee would read the first three sentences, mm-hmm. then Ed would read the next three, and then I would read the ne- As soon as it was my turn... I was just choppy and horrible and couldn't pronounce words and would lose my place and kids would laugh at me. And so I could read books to myself just fine. Mm-hmm. The moment I had to read a book out loud, it was over. It was over. And so I And was like, it's
1: hard when it's yeah. your own book. You would think it would be a little bit easier, but it was and so hard. And the world was gonna
2: listen to it, right? So yes. it's not just I'm gonna be sitting in a room with a microphone and speaking. It's like the world's gonna listen to this. So the, the guys were such professional at that sound studio. They said, look, open up to your favorite chapter, and I forget what it was, and I opened up to my favorite, oh, uh, when me and Andrew would go driving in the GTR. And Mm. I read that, and they were just, they let me just read for one day, the first day they just sat there and just coached me. All right, read it this way. Well, how did you feel about Andrew? Why I felt this? Well, why don't you show that emotion in your voice? Oh, okay. By day three, we actually went back to the first chapter, and I started reading, and those guys were so good. It made me feel so comfortable. Gosh, yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's so, it makes such a difference in who you have around you and who you have helping you through that situation. And I think that's so important why they're like, you're big on masterminds, you're big on, you know, coaching and, and making sure you've got good people around you because, that kind of stuff is hard. I didn't know. I didn't really talk to anyone else who had done their book on Audible. And there was one moment when I was in the recording studio. I was like, "Okay, I just need to get out of here." And I was like, "I need to do some push-ups. I got to breathe. I got to do push-ups." I just got in. <laughs> he oh, was like looking at me like, "Okay, so I'm in this tiny little recording studio doing push-ups." And it worked. I felt better. Yeah. Took some breaths, but it being in that little room for a while, it yeah. was hard, but Your voice comes through so well. I'm so so happy I did it, to be honest with you. Oh my gosh. I love yeah. it, its but Y'all have to go out and get this book. I'm telling you, man up. I, now I tell myself, woman up, you know, <laughs> I love that.
0: woman, woman
1: up. up, you know. Yeah. But in Texas, we say, get her done. That's one of the things I'm big on mottos too. So another book, I will be looking out for that second book. You.
2: It won't be for a while, so I don't want to feel the pressure.
1: I, yes, I know, because it, it is a lot of pressure, but I'm it glad is. that you've got that stirring in you because this one was so incredible. Thank you. And I hope I get to share the stage with you again. That was so you know, much fun. That would fun. be
2: awesome. Wouldn't it be great if the world opens up where we can just impact people and touch people's lives and not be worried about being in proximity because we're humans and we're tribal and we're supposed to hug and we're supposed to connect and not that sideways hug, but the belly to belly hugs where
1: energy yeah. is transferred. Yeah. God
2: dang it, I miss that.
1: I miss it so much. It's not what the happened? same on Zoom. It, I Miss it. I miss hugs. I can't wait to hug people like bear hug. I'm going to make it uncomfortable where I. Same.
2: Yeah. Like when they try and detach, I'm going to hold them just for an yep, extra beat. that's me. <laughs> yeah. yeah <Joe's> laughing.
1: <laughs> well, tell us where we can find you. I mean, if you just Google his name, y'all, it, you're all over the place. Yeah. But tell us the best way for people if they want to reach you, if they want to find you. Best way is just on
2: Instagram. I'm just really fond of Instagram. I think it's a neat platform. So at Bedros Koulian.
1: Okay. Yeah. Well, thank you. This has been you, so much fun. This has been such an honor. Thank you so much I for being it. on. Thank you.
0: Thanks so much for joining us this week on True Grit and Grace podcast. If you like it, please rate it or share it with your friends. That would help too. If you're not yet on the newsletter list, come over to AmberlyLago.com and jump on it. While you're there, you can grab a free downloadable gratitude journal and you might just want to check out my book or even check out my monthly motivational membership. Thanks again for tuning in and we'll see you next week.